Did you know that DuPont, the world's fourth largest chemical company, was dumping the solvents used to clean their machinery into four lagoons in northern Jersey? According to an investigation by NorthJersey.com, these dangerous solvents were entering residents' homes, and then regulators got a whiff of their funny business. Despite this knowledge, residents were kept in the dark for years. When they found out, a lot of them were not able to sue due to them signing a release that had to be a part of another lawsuit they had settled against the company. Local leaders fought against federal aid because they thought it would leave a stigma for the town as a toxic area, but for these families, it's too late since they are already suffering the consequences. Since 2016, so many of us have become very active in politics. However, we tend to forget what our state and local governments are doing because of the chaos coming out of D.C. That's why Ron, Jay, and Brian, the hosts of Parkway Politics, have created a podcast to discuss the important local issues. If you're up for a great discussion about New Jersey politics and issues, then subscribe to the Parkway Politics podcast. It's important to voice the state and local issues to make sure they're not going unchecked. There are plenty of great podcasts out there that talk about national issues, but Parkway Politics is focused solely on delivering what is happening in New Jersey. Follow them on Twitter at Parkway Politics, and of course, subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. And now to the Millennial Politics Podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Nathan Rubin, founder of Millennial Politics, and Siraj Patel, Obama alum and Democratic candidate for New York's 12th Congressional District. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, y'all. Yeah. So, for starters, could you tell us about your background and what drove you to run for Congress? Yeah, totally. So I'm a first-generation immigrant. My family moved to the United States about 10 years before I was born. And um, I grew up in Indiana uh, as a small business, um, like, sort of family. We we, We built a... A hospitality and real estate company um, as a family with our own sort of reinvested money, living and working in uh, motels and restaurants and stuff like that growing up um, all over the country. And I ended up going to Stanford for undergrad. And then I moved to New York City 12 years ago uh, to go to law school here. Two years into law school, I or one year into law school, I was super inspired by uh, another skinny kid with a funny name running for president from uh, the Midwest. And so I left law school to join the Obama campaign, first as a community organizer, as a field organizer, and then I went on to do advance, traveling um, you know, all across the country ahead of the senator at the time and, and then as the president, setting up for events, rallies, anything you needed to get executed, we were doing on the ground. So it was like uh, an incredible experience that really got me sort of fully, fully vested in seeing how important politics can be, how inspirational it can be if we do it right. If we run for office by a premise on the idea that we're lifting people up rather than dividing people, then this can be one of the greatest sort of forces for good and social change uh, in the world. And so that's basically what I'm trying to do now after law school. So I finished law school here at NYU. Um, I got a uh, master's in public policy from Cambridge. And so I've been teaching for the last six year, uh, six semesters at NYU's Stern School of Business, um, I teach business ethics. And what better time than now to be bringing that kind of sort of ethical and business thought into politics, into government. Um, the last year, obviously, we've seen 
a steady attack and erosion of our democratic norms and values. But even going before that, I think the political establishment is guilty of getting us to a point where um, so many of us feel like we're powerless in politics, that the influence of corporations and Wall Street and big money in politics makes it so that our voices are being um, silenced. And so I'm running because I think we need dramatic change, new ideas and new energy and new people in office. So as a first-generation American, I'm sure that immigration is a topic very close to your heart. And like the overwhelming majority of Americans, I'm sure you support the DREAM Act. But as you probably know, it wouldn't be a magic fix to our immigration system or even cover the majority of undocumented Americans. What do you, as a member of Congress, want to do to comprehensively reform our immigration system? So first off, if we're going to comprehensively reform immigration, which we desperately need to, and as Democrats, we failed to do when we had uh, the Speaker's gavel in 2009 and 10. We really need to make it a priority, not an afterthought. We also want to negotiate uh, with Republicans from a position of power and strength, not always sort of giving, giving, giving ground and compromising for ourselves while getting nothing sort of in return in the way of justice for the 12 million or so people living in this country and living in the shadows. Those people are by and large here as integral members of our society. They're simply here to, you know, have a better life for their kids. And they ought to be able to get a pathway to citizenship comprehensively along with the dreamers that I don't think it's enough to just focus on one group. And so that's why I, you know, last or two weeks ago became the first candidate in New York state uh, that's running for Congress to call for the defunding of ICE should we uh, get the speaker's gavel back this November. And the reason is because if we do that, then, you know, you're taking away Donald Trump's 50 state mass deportation squad. The man's a racist, but he's only using the tools Congress is giving him. And I believe it'd be immoral of Democrats to give him a tool to um, scare families in, in our own homes and schools and churches and mosques and synagogues across this country. ICE should be a border security force, a customs enforcement force. It is not a deportation squad in our cities. It shouldn't be in our cities. So if we take that away from him, that brings them to the negotiating table at an even spot. Right now, you know, they're saying, oh, we'll deport these uh, 900,000 kids unless you give us, you know, 1920s level, you know, immigration constraints, uh, a border wall that's worthless, and let us continue deporting. And that's just not a position of power. And I think Democrats for too long have been really bad at negotiating. Uh, and maybe it takes some new new blood and also, you know, people with some business experience to come in and say, yeah, maybe we, we can do this a little bit better. As you said, Democrats failed to pass comprehensive immigration reform, specifically the DREAM Act, in the first two years of Obama's term when the Democratic Party held a majority in both chambers of Congress. If they couldn't do it then, what would be different when you enter Congress? I think I'm going to enter Congress with a entire new generation of uh, new Congress people that have new ideas and new visions that aren't simply playing on the same left-right axis, increasingly narrow ideological battles that have gotten us to this stalemate where we have problems like a warming planet, 38,000 gun deaths a year, you know, all those kinds of things that are intractable, that there hasn't been enough future focus in Congress and we have to have new messengers and new ideas. Of course it's going to change because we'll actually lead. I mean, the reason that, that I'm running is because when we didn't have that power, or even now, the people that have the luxury 
And therefore, I believe the obligation to lead with ideas. People that come from very, very blue districts that have lots of influence ought to be doing way more than simply voting the right way. And it's just not being done. Where is the leadership? You know, time and time again, it's New York politicians in this country's history that have brought it back from the brink after periods of, of division and discord, discontent, you know, whether it's Teddy Roosevelt or Franklin Roosevelt, New York leads when it needs to lead. And I believe that, you know, this is the time. Suraj, I appreciate that answer. And I, and I want to talk a little bit about the current campaign. Um, and when we think about where we are as a country with the type of xenophobic rhetoric that we've been hearing, according to recent articles in BuzzFeed and Politico, you've outraised your primary opponent, incumbent Carolyn Maloney. And she recently commented on your fundraising ability, saying that most of your contributions, quote, came from out of state and from people with the last name Patel. What's your response to this attack? And how are you approaching a campaign where you run against the New York City political establishment? I mean, how many Patels do you guys know? <laughs> I mean, I think there are a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there's about 250,000 Patels in this country alone. It is a, it's an extremely common surname, obviously. So, you know, our fundraising comes, we're proud to take uh, donation dollars who, for people who support the mission of this campaign, which is to bring new ideas and new energy into politics. And I had been, um, you know, until now, you know, saying, look, we're running against apathy. We're running for bringing new people into the process that 92% of this city does, uh, district doesn't even vote in a democratic primary. And all those things are true. And, you know, unfortunately, the truth is you have to raise money uh, in order to be taken seriously by the media and political elites. I hope that one day will change because money ought not to be the single biggest sort of factor by which these people say you're serious. Actually, in fact, a good CEO or a good you know, business person would knows that you want to take the least amount of money to yield the most results. And only in politics is that somehow backwards. Let's see, like, you know, how can you raise the most money and burn it on tactics that don't inspire? But we had to do it. And we were raising money from people who are proud of their heritage. We were raising money from people uh, of all colors and backgrounds, um, you know, that, are, that believe in this mission. Uh, I find it to be offensive and, you know, race baiting to say that this guy's last name is Patel and all these other Patels are donating to him. Like, no one's asking how many, uh, you know, Smiths are on Congressman Maloney's list. But I guess that's because half of her contributions come from PACs like Goldman Sachs and, you know, banking packs and financial interests from corporations, not even real human beings. So I welcome the debate on where our money comes from. And I welcome the debate on how one should run a campaign and where it should get its funds from, because we are taking zero corporate PAC money. I'm running on a democratic reform agenda. This country needs to end gerrymandering. It needs to end voter suppression. It needs to make it easier, not harder to vote. And it certainly needs to make it so that it's not impossible for somebody who's not a millionaire to run for office. I think that's what we're going to do on this campaign, and we'll let New York decide. As it relates to the New York political establishment, bring it on. I really don't mind the support of you know, every single person that, that supports someone right now and says, hey, we want new people in politics. We want young energy. We want young people. But whoa, whoa, don't run here. Don't run for Congress. Uh, wait your turn. I don't have the time to wait my turn. America doesn't have the time. We have too many people right now. Uh, like I said, we just talked about immigration. Too many people living in the shadows and fearful of their own government. We have one out of every six black males imprisoned in or incarcerated or on probation by the time they're 30. This isn't the future we want. 
you know, our generation just got $1.5 trillion of debt added to us. It was theft from our generation. You know what $1.5 trillion could have done if we were had, we had a seat at the table and decided how we want to spend our own money? It would make debt-free college uh, available and wipe out all current student debts till approximately 2040. So if we had those choices, we would have done that. And I don't think that uh, we have any you know, time to wait our turn anymore. So I absolutely agree that money shouldn't be the deciding factor in electoral politics. But how do you address the concern that you're receiving a majority of your contributions from outside the district? And as a member of Congress, could you tell us more about what you would do to limit the influence of money in politics? Totally. So regarding uh, raising money from outside the district, look, I think right now a lot of what's happening, the activism and energy and everything you see is much more national, it is national in nature, right? So that I have, because of digital media and all those kinds of tools, the ability to disseminate message everywhere, that those kids in Parkland, Florida, for example, are doing more for national gun control from that school in the last 30 days than 25 years of Congresses have done. Right, and it would be stupid for someone not to raise money from any source possible to make change in their community and in the nation's dialogue. I mean, one of the reasons we're saying where I'm running is because New York ought to be leading. Right, New York City uh, is the center of so many industries and so much influence and power, and yet in politics we've somehow been saddled with, you know, backbenchers and people who release press releases that say the right thing or take good votes on bad bills or believe that activism is, is commemorating a stamp or a coin or something and don't actually take the influence uh, and, and levers of power we have and get to use them in Congress. This is the most educated district in America, and it's one of the most progressive. And therefore, we could from here nationwide be the intellectual and like boldly progressive you know, beacon for how this country and its progressive movement should run. That we should be from here swinging for the fences and saying things like, yeah, let's defund ICE. Or as you just asked, how do I limit the influence of money in politics? I'm for public financing of elections. Uh, I don't think there's any better way to get the influence of money in politics out of it. You know, it's once been said that money like water always finds a way. So let's just get it out uh, of politics altogether. So you mentioned that democratic reform is a really key part of your platform. Now, as you also mentioned, New York politics, it's really a machine that's very much controlled by a wealthy establishment. Could you talk about democratic reform? Could you talk about how you would address democratic reform on a federal level, as well as how you've experienced it firsthand running a campaign in New York City? You know, the New York Democratic Political Establishment, or the New York political establishment or the nation's political establishment is kind of like a duopoly with two uh, sort of legacy companies running and making it difficult for newcomers or challengers to come. I am proud to tell you that in the first seven days of a what 28-day petitioning period in New York, we qualified, we registered enough signatures to qualify for the ballot in the first seven days. Yet, we're going to have to collect a ton more because the opponent in the establishment will challenge your ballot, uh, challenge your signatures. And the reason is because they seem to think that not having competition in politics is somehow acceptable or preferable. I think having competition in politics and democracy is necessary. It literally is. Because there's no incentive to innovate or do anything else, uh, innovate or come up with new ideas or fight or do more if no one's challenging you. This political establishment in New York is is sort of a sclerosis on the city, right? That, that like, only 18% of people voted in the last uh, mayoral election, in fact, and most of the people don't vote because they don't really have real choices. 
And New York is consistently below 40th in turnout. And it's one of the most voter suppressive states in the country. I wrote an op-ed for Vice late last year talking about how you have to register 30 days out. There's no automatic voter registration. There's no registration on the day. Your registration doesn't move with you from place to place. You have to actually give a reason for an absentee ballot. You know, when North Carolina was defending its uh, racist voter suppression to the Fifth Circuit, in their brief, they actually said, well, if you think we're bad, look at New York. Now, if we're supposed to be a progressive place, we're supposed to go across the country and say, oh, yeah, look at, look at New York, blue states, this is how this works. Then why are we not leading by example, right? So I think we need to address democratic reform. And something I've been doing since law school has been talking. You have a lot of time. You can watch some of my videos on gerrymandering, uh, voting rights, money in politics, corporate PACs, all that kind of stuff on a website called Talks on Law. They're like one hour, super in-depth, kind of dry but fun talks on gerrymandering and all that kind of stuff. We need you know, massive reform. When, when uh, digital tools and, and mapping and stuff came out, the people's thoughts were... Um, you know what? This is great. This is how we'll finally end gerrymandering. We'll just have computers draw lines across the country. Well, guess what? Politics is the only sport I've ever seen sort of that lets the players also be the umpires. And so when given the power to cut in really like precision, laser-like precision, uh, district boundaries by, by demographics, by age, by gender, by uh, race, you know, of course, these people... Uh, made it, uh, the, the establishment uh, uh, in each state, actually, uh, whether that's Republicans and in some cases Democrats, uh, use those with laser-like precision to choose their voters rather than the other way around. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I believe that voters should choose their politicians and not the other way around. I'd like to follow up about your incumbent, Representative Maloney. In terms of her record, she has pretty stellar ratings from health, education, and progressive advocacy groups an F rating from the NRA. She's incredibly active in terms of proposing and co-sponsoring bills, which is her job, of course. So why challenge her? Why are you a better candidate to represent the people of the 12th? Representative Maloney is, quote-unquote, good enough. I guess she takes the right votes uh, and loses them time and time again. We're at the lowest level of power since 1929 in this country as Democrats, that this, doing the same thing over and over and saying, you know, we'll pay lip service and, and take the right vote but lose isn't good enough anymore. You know, Ayanna Presley is running in a primary in, in Boston and she said taking good votes on bad bills isn't good enough anymore. And I think that's exactly the right sentiment. She should be leading, right, from a place like this that's wholly progressive, not simply, you know, checking a box and, and issuing a press release. That This is from where she could be proposing bold reforms for democracy, for criminal justice, for things like that. And she's not doing it. And so, yeah, great. Getting, getting, the, getting an you know, A rating from a bunch of interest groups is fine. And I'm certain that I will get those too when I'm in Congress. The opportunity cost of what we're missing here is how much more you could be doing. Okay, and on top of that, she isn't as progressive as this district deserves. When I'm in Congress... I will not vote for the biggest foreign policy blunder in, in modern history. I will not vote for something like the Iraq war. I would have supported the Iran deal. President Obama, me, even Rex Tillerson supports the Iran deal. But Donald Trump and Kelly Maloney do not. I would not take corporate PAC money because it's hypocritical to say I'm for overturning Citizens United, but then take it, and she does. And I certainly do not believe that anyone can be absolved of responsibility in the Democratic establishment that voted for the 1994 crime bill that imposed mandatory minimums for drug crimes, things like that. That we have a mass incarceration problem in this country because of Republicans and Democrats alike, uh, you know, being tough on crime as a way to triangulate their way into certain voting groups. 
you know, our people, our generation does not believe that people are pawns. And we're not going to uh, play that game. So, Siraj, you've worked on both Obama campaigns. You were a part of the Obama administration. You did advance work. You traveled with the president at times. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that experience was like and what were some of the greatest lessons you learned? Oh, man. I mean, getting to do a rally or an event or something with Barack Obama every seven days is like a master class in seeing how remarkably uh, uplifting and hopeful and inspiring politics can be if we do it right. If we lead with empathy and, and radical transparency, if we lead with vulnerability and we say we don't have all the answers, but you know what we do? We listen to every single person. That's the single biggest lesson that traveling with the president uh, allows you to see firsthand is how many people brave you know, freezing cold, five-hour lines, metal detectors, and everything just to bring their kids to see somebody that they can be proud of as a representative for this country. And too few people, I think, in politics think about that, that so many people go to the easy answer, which is, how do I win? Let me create division and, 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 and inspire and get people to vote because of fear or anger or whatever. And while that might be the easy way out, temporarily, it is not the way for lasting change. You know, at the end when the president said, we're the ones we've been waiting for, that we, it's our duty now to, to take on the mantle of hope and change, I took it to heart and we're doing it. So, you know, I, I owe everything in my political sort of outlook and career to, to that president in that White House. And what was one of your fondest experiences and memories of, of working there? You know, I got to go to India two weeks ahead of the president when I was doing an advance trip there. And um, when the president was coming for three days for the Republic Day celebrations in 2015, my, uh, one of my other major heroes, obviously it ought to be everyone's, is Mahatma Gandhi. And I was in charge of the wreath laying ceremony uh, that the president laid a wreath at at his resting place at Rajgarh, his old house. We got every American president visited there and foreign dignitaries plant a tree at that place. And I actually got to, you know, dig the hole that President Obama put that tree in. And there's a plaque there. And unfortunately, the tree has since uh, died, but they replaced it. So I will still say that the hole is mine. And it was really, really <laughs> remarkable and inspiring uh, to be there. You know, in the, in the, there's something really special and spiritual about Mahatma Gandhi's resting place at Rajgat anyway. So that experience was just like one I'll keep and treasure forever. So there's still some time left in the primary. How can folks learn more about you and potentially get involved in your campaign if they want? I sure hope they do. Um, so our primary is on June 26th. And that's pretty much our election because as of now, I don't even think that there's a Republican candidate declared. So this is it. This is our sprint. I think we have uh, 100 days left um, in this election, and we've got to get out there and motivate and get in front of and talk to and listen to as many people as possible. So we encourage you to go to June26.nyc, which is our website, because June 26th is the election date, and the most, most people don't vote because they just don't even know there's an election coming up. Um, and so that's something we're trying to change. But June26.nyc, there you can learn a little bit more about our campaign. You can sign up to uh, volunteer. You can sign up to you know host an event, host a house party. Um, we do really, really interesting and fun events. I literally just got out of a Mile High Run Club run 
which is part of our fitness town hall series. We do every few weeks or every week or so, we attempt to do a partnership event with a fitness studio because we also believe in the wellness and, and, and healthiness of our uh, constituents in our community. We want to lead by example. But it also allows new people who would otherwise not come to some stale political rally or event to experience politics. That we're trying to infuse politics with art, culture, science, all those things that makes it maybe more relevant because what we've been doing isn't working. You know, 26% of America gave us Donald Trump. It means about half of America didn't even bother to vote. And in this case, 92% of this city doesn't even bother to vote. This district doesn't even bother to vote. And so what are we doing wrong? I'm not, you know, this Democrat, if the Democratic establishment is satisfied with that in this city, you know, and that's how we get a representation, I'm certainly not satisfied with that. New York's not satisfied with that. We're going to prove that, correct, in, in, on January 20, uh, sorry, on June 26th. But yeah, we'd love to have your guys' ideas, uh, support, help, any way you can. We also have, for you New Yorkers out there, a very dope campaign office at 64 Cooper Square, right in Astor Place. It used to be a social justice bar that, do, that donated 100% of its proceeds to Planned Parenthood, to NRDC, ACLU, uh, groups like that. And what we've done here is taken this over as our campaign office. Um, we let people come in and work out of here, people in the community and other campaigns that are progressive uh, and other groups that are progressive can come in and use our space in the evenings if it's open to have your meetings and events. And we do a standing Friday happy hour here where um, people can come in and learn more about us and access me and uh, the rest of our team. Oh, and we have a one other, yeah, we also have a, a pretty amazing internship program. So um, that's also something you can find on the website for anyone who's that who's interested. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming on. I know that New York politics are tough. I worked for a mayoral campaign against de Blasio last summer. There was not great turnout there. So it's really nice to see someone working to turn out those voters who don't show up at midterms or even the presidential election. So thank you for that. Yeah, it sounds good. Thank you. Absolutely. To our listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you want to hear more from progressive candidates like Siraj, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and support us by purchasing our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.